some have a fixed term, fixed non-renewable term. And I'm grateful to the Founding Fathers for writing into the Constitution that the judges shall hold their office during good behavior. <laughs> so I, I, many people have asked me, well, when, when are you going to step down? So my, my, my first response was, I had a, a painting on loan from the Museum of American Art. It was by Joseph Albers, and I loved it. And they took it away from me for a traveling show. About eight years later, it came back. And so I said, I couldn't even begin to think about leaving until I get my Albers back. <laughs> And it came back. The next was Brandeis. He was the same age as I was when he was appointed. And he stepped down after 23 years. That worked for years 20 to 23. But now I'm, I'm the longest sitting Jewish justice, and more than Brandeis, more than Frankfurter. So I can't use that Brandeis anymore. So I'm just candid and say, as long as I can do the job full steam, I will be here. Greetings, friends. It's Celine here with the second episode of Three on Three, my podcast miniseries on United States federal courts. And as is standard procedure, I want to introduce you to the person speaking at the front of this episode. If you couldn't make out who it was, and I think that is almost impossible in this day and age because they're such an influential and popular figure, it's none other than America's Pearl, the notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, an associate justice on the Supreme Court of the United States. And as you heard in the soundbite, Justice Ginsburg speaks on judicial tenure, which per the Constitution, is good behavior tenure. And then she continues to describe the terms and conditions that she set for herself while on the Supreme Court pertaining to what it's going to take for her to step down and close her judicial career. And Justice Ginsburg provides a very important preface to this episode because we are going to be talking about judicial tenure. We are going to essentially clarify what good behavior tenure is and take a look at on-the-ground policies and regulations regarding judicial behavior and tenure. And this is also relevant because if you've been paying attention to the news lately, especially Supreme Court news, you'd know that Unfortunately, Justice Ginsburg had a relapse in her cancer and was also recently hospitalized for an infection. And I realized that this episode might hit heavy for some RBG fans who are currently still kind of on edge, even though Justice Ginsburg said that she would remain on the court. Because in the event that her seat has to be vacated and is vacated. Well, that 
that shifts the jurisprudential and ideological pendulum of the Supreme Court. Um, Democrats and Republicans will be vying for that seat. They will duel to the, <laughs> well, not duel to the death, but they're going to give it their all to make sure that either party, their party, will get the seat or get to nominate the person who will succeed Justice Ginsburg. And, you know, even though this kind of might be intimidating and nerve-wracking stuff to think about, I promise you, you will learn important aspects of the judiciary and it's going to be worth it because it can inform your courts-based activism. Like, I promise you, you are in good hands. I wrote my senior thesis on this and I promise it'll be interesting. Like, I don't know if you can already tell, but I am not as scripted as I was in the first episode. My voice is not monotonous this time. I think this episode is going to be a bit shorter. It's going to be on things that you guys asked me to talk about. So I'm giving to the people. Um, and so with that, <laughs> let's get on with the show. So the first point of discussion is divining from our founding documents what good behavior means. And as we dive into, you know, our founding trilogy, this is going to seem like old news for the people that listened to the first episode of this podcast because we're going to be working with the same set of words. But I promise you there will be nuance because we're not coming at these words with the same analytical lens as last time because last time we were just reading them to find out what the intent behind establishing our judiciary was and what our founding fathers thought the function of a judiciary was but now we're coming at these words with the question of okay what what do they give us in terms of the founding fathers conception of how long a judge can stay in office and what they can do while they're in office. So let's start with the Constitution because Article 3 gives us the term good behavior. And so if you remember, Article 3 says the judges, both of the supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their offices during good behavior. Plain reading of that little snippet just tells us that justiceships and judgeships for federal courts and the Supreme Court are contingent upon something, but they are not specific because good behavior is just very vague language. And so, like any good legal scholar slash jurist, we have to dig a bit deeper and the instinctual thing is to go to the Federalist Papers, particularly Federalist number 78. And just for context, aside from the Constitution, I am pretty sure that Federalist number 78 is like a Bible <laughs> to federal judges. Um, they, they tend to quote Federalist number 78 a lot during confirmation hearings. And, you know, I'm saying this in jest, but I genuinely think that being able to recite Federalist 78, or at least being able to describe the tenets laid out in Federalist 78, is a prerequisite for being a federal judge. I think it's cute. But anyways, in Federalist number 78, Alexander Hamilton tells us, 
the standard of good behavior for the continuance in office of the judicial magistracy is certainly one of the most valuable of the modern improvements in the practice of government. In a monarchy, it is an excellent barrier to the despotism of the prince. In a republic, it is a no less excellent barrier to the encroachments and oppressions of the representative body. And it is the best expedient which can be devised in any government to secure a steady, upright, and impartial administration of the laws. In Federalist 78, Alexander Hamilton is forcing us to infer what good behavior means through context clues. And he says that good behavior is compromised by outside influences, by princes slash kings, by extension presidents, because, you know, executive power, as well as legislators, because he gives a nod to the threat of the representative body. And so what we get from this is that good behavior is generally anti-corruption, and that, that concern and that interest in anti-corruption is laid out in the Declaration of Independence. And again, these are the same same words that I recited in the first episode, and it's that King George III has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. Okay, so that's what we know from our founding documents. Given this info, we, we know what good behavior isn't, but now we need to find an umbrella term that is synonymous with good behavior and that's accessible to the public. Like it has to be intuitive and it doesn't, it shouldn't require regular people who aren't legal scholars to consult the Federalist Papers or the Declaration of Independence. Like it should just be like, it should come to our heads like that. And so I came across the umbrella concept that I think we all need to keep in mind during my comparative constitutions class. And you know, if you listen to the first episode, you know that this class changed my life, right? Um, in this class, I was introduced to Martin Shapiro's work, and he wrote this, I think it's a book, yeah, he wrote this book on comparative courts. And in it, he describes what I think of as the platonic ideal of a modern common law court, but he characterizes it as a prototypical court. And I think his description of this type of court sheds light on good behavior. It shines a brighter light on it. And so here's what his conception of a modern common law court is. It involves an independent judge applying pre-existing legal norms after adversary proceedings in order to achieve a dichotomous decision in which one of the parties was assigned the legal right and the other found wrong. Okay, Shapiro here not only lists the criteria in sequential order, like, um, how proceedings would go, he also lists them in order of importance. So what we get from this is that at the heart of a legitimate court, a platonic court, is an independent judge. 
And judges have to be independent from attacks on primarily two fronts. The first front is the more obvious front. It's the extrajudicial front. And that's, that's basically the examples we've already discussed, like government actors from different branches of government, the king, the president, um, legislators. It could also be it could also be from family and friends, people who work outside the institution but obviously have interests in what a judge's institution, a court, is doing. And then during my comparative constitutions class, I was introduced to the second front on which a judge could be attacked. And it's it's the collegial front or what I call the intrajudicial front. And so what that alludes to is the idea that, well, what happens if one judge tries to coerce or persuade or lobby another judge on the same court to vote the same way that they are, right? They're scheming and plotting. And and that's something that I think some people have in mind, but not all people have in mind when they think of judicial independence. It just, it's so easy to get caught up in what's obvious, but you know, sometimes you have to dig deeper again and just think about all of the ways in which judges who are human can be susceptible to persuasion, especially unwarranted persuasion. And then you know, independence, independence from these two fronts breeds impartiality. And impartiality is the notion that federal judges and justices act in good faith and they operate throughout all judicial proceedings without bias. So that's impartiality and it's primarily measured by public perception. Anything a judge does, the public construes that and they can draw inferences and, you know, make assumptions about where a judge's heart lies or which party they have a predilection for. And that's always the sense of paranoia that comes with watching courts. That's what you have to keep in mind. Moving on to the second point, we are going to be exploring the eclectic regulations kind of governing judicial tenure and judicial behavior. And of course they're eclectic because they come from different sources. It could be from the constitution or federal statute or codes of conduct that high level officials in the judicial branch draft. And you know, these things, it's important to note, are not enforced uniformly. And so that should be that should be a huge red flag for all of us. But anyways, regarding this discussion point in general, I think we have the space to confront why we think about judicial tenure as lifetime appointments because that's apparently a thing. So we know that what we actually have is good behavior tenure and that's contingent upon what we discussed in the first point, which is independence and impartiality. Lifetime appointments are a whole other thing because it when you think of a lifetime appointment, you're basically thinking of an entitlement. Like, so long as a judge is confirmed to their seat on the federal bench, so long as they are alive, they will have, they will have that judgeship or justiceship till they die, which is a scary thing 
to conceive. So we have to ask the question of how can we get a judge to step down while they're still alive? And the public consensus seems to be that impeachment is the only way to oust a federal judge. And even though we just experienced like an impeachment process with President Trump, I have to, this is just a habit. I like explaining what impeachment is because people still confuse it. They, they still confuse it with removal. Impeachment is not removal. They are not synonymous. Impeachment begets removal sometimes. So impeachment is a constitutionally permissible mechanism to remove someone from public office. It's a process where someone, like we saw with President Trump, is formally charged and tried and can either be acquitted or removed. And for some reason, like, I can't blame the people who think that impeachment is the only way to get rid of a federal judge because linguistically there's like a lot of things happening. Um, but, you know, government actors actually feed us the idea that impeachment is the only way to oust a federal judge. Like, for example, if you go to the White House website, they have like a tab where they like describe the various other branches of government. And under the judicial branch page, I found this. It says, federal judges can only be removed through impeachment by the House of Representatives and conviction in the Senate. And so I'm here, like, you know, with my knowledge about scholarly consensus, not public consensus. And I'm just like, why are you, why are you saying this, White House? Why are you saying this, question mark? And so in order for us to unlearn this association we make between good behavior, tenure, and lifetime appointment, we have to confront what the truth is in order to, you know, kill our mistake. And we have to look, again, as I said, to scholarly consensus. And I want to take us way back to the 1970s. And I'm going to tell you about this cool Harvard law professor named Raul Berger. Hopefully I'm pronouncing his name right. It's spelt R-A-O-U-L. I'm going to say it's Raul. Um, and, you know, in 1973, Berger wrote this book on impeachment appropriately titled Impeachment, the Constitutional Problems. And, you know, he used his Harvard smarts to kind of flesh out the legal history, the function, and the ambit of impeachment within the parameters of the United States Constitution. And I think this formed the basis of modern scholarly discussions of impeachment. Like, I think this is the best scholarly work on impeachment I've ever read. If you so happen to have read Milka Chal's book, I think it's like Impeach the Case Against Donald Trump. It's like a reddish-orange book. Like, that is fine and dandy, and I do appreciate former General Kachal's input in the impeachment discussions, but he, Raul Berger is on another level. So if you have time to read this book, because it's lengthy, read this book, because you will understand impeachment so well. But yeah, no, in this book, Berger kind of drags the constitutional cross-referential reading of the impeachment and good behavior clauses. He opens the chapter on impeachment and good behavior by 
saying this. The Founding Fathers would in all probability have been astonished to learn that impeachment would sink to the ouster of little judges soiled by corruption. And so what Berger is getting at here is that impeachment is a big deal because as we should know, impeachment is triggered by, you know, suspecting someone in public office to have committed a high crime and or misdemeanor, which like when I think of high crimes and misdemeanors, I think of treason. And if you want to learn more about how we define high crimes and misdemeanors, again, I'm going to say, even though Neil Kachal's book is not as as um, comprehensive as Berger's book, I would say he has, General Kachal has insight on how to interpret what a high crime and misdemeanor is. So yeah, check that out too. Um, but anyways, back to what I was saying, like impeachment is a big deal. That's what Berger Berger wants us to get at. And if you hold federal judges accountable by impeachment, the only thing you're going to be looking for in terms of that is a judge who commits a high crime and or misdemeanor, which is most likely going to be a rare thing. And so that raises the question of, well, what if a federal judge does something that's not good behavior, they compromise or corrupt their independence, and like it's not treasonous. <laughs> like, what do you do? How do you punish them? What if you want them out? Because it, uh, it'll it affect cases, right? And so Berger, Berger helps tackle this issue. First, he goes through the arguments of the people who say that you should read the good behavior clause in the Constitution um, in strong connection with the high crimes and misdemeanors slash impeachment provision in the Constitution. Um, I mean, the most basic argument that he brings up is that these people are like, well, there's an express provision in the Constitution for each of these elements, so, like, why wouldn't we not read it that way? But to that, Berger says that, well, the necessity of an express provision is actually in the interest of checks and balances. Because we have this thing set out in our constitution, or, well, it's not explicitly set out in our constitution, and that's like a huge, that's a conversation for another time, but like, it's implied in our constitution that we have separation of powers. And we've learned that in our civics education class from like day one, right? But, you know, if you give Congress the power to hold impeachment proceedings, both houses of Congress, then that means that Congress is essentially assuming a judicial function, a primarily judicial function, because it's like a criminal trial. And so by having this express provision in the Constitution, the Founding Fathers were basically kind of saying like, hey, at this moment, this is this is checks and balances. We're prioritizing checks and balances over um, the separation of powers right now. And then the next argument that pro-strong connection people make is this idea of absolute independence. So think about the two fronts of influence. There's intrajudicial influence and then there's extrajudicial influence. The absolute independence argument 
refers to the former. It addresses the former in the sense that, of course, you would like to have impeachment proceedings that take place in the legislative body because can we really trust the judicial branch to regulate itself? I don't know the answer to that question. Do you have an answer to that question? I don't, I don't know. But yeah, so that's, that's the absolute independence argument from what I understand. And then there's also the special insulation argument, which addresses the extrajudicial influence in the sense that, well, okay, if you have the legislative body in control of impeachment proceedings for judges, let's say the legislative body is kind of irked with decisions by a certain judge because they always, um, they always block legislation. They always render it unconstitutional. If the bar for impeachment were low, or if just the bar for removing judges was low and didn't have to include high crimes and misdemeanors and you didn't have to go through this whole like criminal process, then, well, wouldn't, wouldn't we have a lot of, wouldn't we already by now have a congressional committee dedicated to removing federal judges for like the slightest of crimes? And so like when I think about the special insulation thing. The special insulation argument is important because it, it prevents the legislature from abusing the removal power. And so Berger breaks down and addresses these arguments and concludes that traditionally under common law, there's bad behavior that is unimpeachable that historically through common law tradition would be considered in courts of law, not parliament, not the house of lords, not the house of reps, not the senate. And you know, if the charges ring true, it would lead to forfeiture of office. And there's also unethical crimes, highly unethical crimes, high crimes and misdemeanors that public officials could commit that would lead to impeachment and possibly removal. So what you have here is basically this gap, this hiatus of not good behavior that's unimpeachable coexisting with this overlap of bad judicial behavior and high crimes and misdemeanors that inspire an impeachment process. And so the glaring issue, the elephant in the room, is we know what to do when judges do ultimately bad, horrible, uncool, like borderline treasonous slash treasonous things, right? We impeach them and if Congress does a good job, we remove them. But we don't know what to do with all of these, you know, little judges, um, what does Berger say? Little judges soiled by corruption. Like, what do you do if a judge does something that's not borderline treasonous slash treasonous, but is still very sus and bad? That's, that's the whole question. That's the conundrum. Um, sometimes I wish I could just end it here, but there's, there's just a lot of other things that we need to cover. So just, I'm going to finish up in a bit on burger and then we'll get to, whew, we'll get to other things. Um, so 
Berger's work, the reason why I say it informed the modern discussion of impeachment and good behavior and whether or not the relationship is tight or like tenuous is that I, I used a secondary source in my senior thesis called um, How to Remove a Federal Judge. And it's a 2006 law review article by professors Sikrishna Prakash and Stephen Smith of the University of San Diego Law School. And they come to a similar conclusion as Berger in the sense that they describe why common law tradition implies that good behavior, tenure, and impeachment aren't directly related. And they also back Berger up by saying that traditionally impeachment and good behavior tenure served different purposes. And, you know, they're different in the terms of the type of regulation, the intensity of the regulation that they place upon public officials. Um, but they do kind of stray away from Berger in the sense that they look more into American colonial history and state constitutions to further the argument that in the preliminary days of our republic, the understanding that good behavior, tenure, and impeachment um, had a very tenuous relationship was the general understanding throughout the colonies slash states in contrast to what we believe today. But in the end, Prakash, Smith, and Berger all say that Congress should do something to check this gray area in judicial ethics. And funnily enough, they discuss forfeiture jurisdiction. And you might have heard about forfeiture jurisdiction through the language of civil asset forfeiture. According to the ACLU, there are patterns of abusing civil asset forfeiture. And, you know, that's basically the prosecutorial power of the government to confiscate something from you or seize it from you if you're accused of a crime. Or in some cases where abuse happens, if they merely suspect that you are a criminal. So yeah, that's, that's intriguing. And so I kind of want to bring your attention to an excerpt from Prakash and Smith's Law Review article. They write, Nonetheless, Congress might grant the chief executive the authority to police grants of good behavior tenure. By statute, Congress could empower the president to bring forfeiture actions in court to determine whether a judge had forfeited her office by engaging in misbehavior. Acting on behalf of the federal government, the president and his attorneys could execute this statute and try to prove that some judge had misbehaved. Of course, a federal judge would be free to argue that the executive had failed to prove misbehavior. And so... That's that's what they say about forfeiture jurisdiction and expanding it to let the president, basically an extrajudicial force, complain about the conduct of a judge. But what I have an issue with is, and this kind of goes back to the idea of can we trust the judiciary to regulate itself? Um, where exactly will the Solicitor General and, you know, the DOJ attorneys bringing these cases with forfeiture jurisdiction, like, where would they be going to? They would probably be going to a federal court. So 
which federal court would they be going to and what would happen if that's the same court where the judge they're complaining against serves like it's it's confusing and it's a lot to think about so yeah that's 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 that on that on impeachment so we can move to the next type of regulation Operating within the constitutional parameters that have been provided, the federal judiciary has a code of conduct for federal judges to prevent any type of bad behavior, unimpeachable and impeachable. And this code of conduct is drafted by the Judicial Conference of the United States, which is the national policymaking body of the judiciary. It basically is a safeguard against congressional encroachment. Congress established the Judicial Conference by statute, and by doing so, it relinquished some of its power to regulate the judiciary for the sake of separation of powers and judicial independence. And so what I'm going to do to discuss the Code of Conduct for United States judges is I'm going to keep it short and sweet. I'm just going to read the five overarching canons that are outlined in the Code of Conduct and some of the introductory paragraphs of the Code of Conduct. So here are the five canons. Canon 1. A judge should uphold the integrity and independence of the judiciary. Canon 2. A judge should avoid impropriety and the appearance of impropriety in all activities. Canon 3. A judge should perform the duties of the office fairly, impartially, and diligently. Canon 4. A judge may engage in extrajudicial activities that are consistent with the obligations of judicial office. And Canon 5. A judge should refrain from political activity. So, just looking at these canons, just thinking about them as broad principles, ideas, we see that some of the threads that we've already pulled are present, um, specifically the idea of judicial independence, public perception of impartiality, and the idea that judges should not really be political actors because of public perception slash retribution from the legislative body. And so now I'm going to read the introductory paragraphs. There's one paragraph that says this code applies to United States Circuit Judges, District Judges, Judges of the Court of International Trade, and the Court of Federal Claims, as well as Bankruptcy Judges and Magistrate Judges. In addition, there's a longer paragraph that says, the code is designed to provide guidance to judges and nominees for judicial office. It may also provide standards of conduct for application and proceedings under the Judicial Council's Reform and Judicial Conduct and Disability Act of 1980. Not every violation of the code should lead to disciplinary action. Whether disciplinary action is appropriate and the degree of discipline should be determined through a reasonable application of the text and should depend on such factors as the seriousness of the improper activity, the intent of the judge, whether there is a pattern of improper activity, and the effect of the improper activity on others or on the judicial system. Many of the restrictions in the code are necessarily cast in general terms, and judges may reasonably differ in their interpretation. 
wow, interesting. So in reading these these introductory paragraphs um, that kind of explain the big idea behind this code of conduct, we have to ask about what exactly is holding the Supreme Court accountable because it seems as though this is just for lower court judges. And we also have to talk about like how well is the enforcement of the code of conduct because in the end like can we trust the enforcement because it it literally says that the language in this code of conduct is deliberately in general terms so that judges can interpret the rules and again we're faced with the question of can judges really regulate other judges like can we trust this type of um internal regulation that that kind of stuck out to me and it reminds me of something that I think I might cover in a later episode this idea of you know young women in the judiciary who serve as clerks and are sexually harassed by their judges their host judges their bosses essentially and you they try to report these things, which are pretty much covered under the canons of judicial ethics. Like, they should be able to bring up credible claims and be treated seriously, but some of the claims get swept under the rug. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm thinking about when I'm reading this code of conduct and how much leniency there is for these federal judges to judge other federal judges. Gosh, wow. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's my two cents. That's my overview of the code of conduct for U.S. judges. Finally, under this point of discussion, we can look at federal statutes governing judicial ethics and tenure. And I'm going to go over the first federal statute kind of quickly. It's Title 28 of the United States Code, Section 351, which reads... Any person alleging that a judge has engaged in conduct prejudicial to the effective and expeditious administration of the business of the courts, or alleging that such judge is unable to discharge all the duties of office by reason of mental or physical disability, may file with the clerk of the Court of Appeals for the circuit a written complaint containing a brief statement of the facts constituting such conduct. And so here we have a statute that empowers people to file a complaint against judges if they think their health is an issue or if their conduct is a glaring issue. And and I think one shortcoming of this statute, and it's it's a pretty significant shortcoming, is the fact that this is just for lower court judges. It's for district court judges and courts of appeal, but it doesn't address anything on the Supreme Court level. So this can't apply to, say, RBG or Stephen Breyer or Justice Alito or any of the really old people on the Supreme Court. And, you know, the statute I want to talk about more in length is Title 28 of the U.S. Code, Section 371, which establishes what is colloquially known as the Rule of 80. And the Rule of 80 says that for federal judges, 
in order for them to step down from full activity, they have to satisfy these two requirements. They have to be at least 65 years old to retire and have to have served a minimum of 15 years on the federal bench. And you know, 65 plus 15 equals 80 years. This moves on a sliding scale. The older a judge is, the less time they have to serve, but it all has to equal to 80. So for example, if a judge is 70 years old, they just have to have served a minimum of 10 years on the federal bench before they can retire. And when judges want to step down, they have the option of taking something called senior status. And that's basically when judges assume a lighter workload. It's kind of like how a former teacher may become a substitute teacher when they retire. And statistics from the federal judiciary indicate that in total, senior judges take up 15% of the federal judiciary's workload. And a recent newsworthy assumption of senior status by a federal judge, in my opinion, occurred on June 27th, 2018. If you don't remember what happened on that day, that was when Justice Anthony Kennedy retired from the Supreme Court of the United States. And if you listen to the first episode, you can probably and correctly infer that I have an appreciation, a fondness for Justice Kennedy. He's a really cool dude and he's from California and I don't know, I like the way he speaks so I I think I can draw a lot of examples from Justice Kennedy's judicial lifetime to serve as um, primary sources for this podcast. So I am going to read his retirement letter because I can to just show you how a federal judge can retire and assume senior status. My dear Mr. President, this letter is a respectful and formal notification of my decision, effective July 31st of this year, to end my regular active status as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court while continuing to serve in a senior status as provided by Title 28 of the United States Code, Section 371. For a member of the legal profession, it is the highest of honors to serve on this court. Please permit me by this letter to express my profound gratitude for having had the privilege to seek in each case how best to know, interpret, and defend the Constitution and the laws that must always conform to its mandates and promises. Respectfully and sincerely, Anthony M. Kennedy. So, some of the interviews that I've seen of Justice Kennedy post-retirement, he's he's discussed how the Chief Justice has like special assignments for him, diplomatic assignments, administrative assignments, so Justice Kennedy is doing well in his senior status retirement. And you know, just to go back to what I was saying, when a judge wants to step down, they have the option to do what Justice Kennedy did and assume senior status, or they could fully retire or they could, under the cruelest circumstances, under the saddest circumstances, pass away. And so, with regards to this rule of 80, which grants judges so much discretion over their retirement, we need to look into ways in which judges and other government actors can abuse this rule. And so, I immediately thought about the rule of 80 as a form of escape. I'm thinking particularly about the situation regarding Judge Alex Kaczynski of the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. I think this happened around 
2019, he was charged with several acts of sexual misconduct. He would call women clerks in to his office, his chambers, and ask them to look at porn, and he also had an office email chain, which I stumbled upon once somewhere, and in it I remember he shared some really asinine and vulgar jokes. And essentially, Kaczynski's judicial career came to an abrupt end. He retired fully. I recently heard, like towards the end of 2019, that Alex Kaczynski, in his full retirement from the federal bench is now reassuming a role as like a lawyer like he's back in court and litigating for people so that's wild and i remember a lot of backlash about that because you know by retiring he he put a stop to the investigation against him what i think about this is it sends out a message that if you retire you can get off the hook which is very problematic. And, you know, aside from how judges can use this rule to their advantage, I'm also thinking about how presidents can use this rule to their advantage. So I'm thinking of young nominees to the federal bench. It kind of helps presidents cement their legacy through the federal judiciary because you have judges who are appointed for a long, long time carrying out judicial decisions that will affect the longevity of a certain party's policies. And so nominating young people to the federal bench is not exclusive to Republicans or Democrats. Young nominees can come from either party. And I'm thinking of Judge Allison Jones rushing a Trump appointee to the Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. She's like 38 now. And I'm also thinking of George Hazel, Judge George Hazel, an Obama appointee to the U.S. District Court of Maryland. And he's around the same age as Judge Rushing. They're in their late 30s, early 40s. So they obviously have a long way to go before they can retire under the rule of 80. And and that means they have a lot of time to, to adjudicate on important cases that come to them that affect our political future, the future of our rights, the future of elections. Judges have so much power. It's it's a lasting legacy. And then of course you have the unfortunate case of a federal judge dying. I'm just going to say for an example, Justice Antonin Scalia. When he died, wow. <laughs> wow, a lot of things happened. Pe like Democrats and Republicans were fighting so hard for his seat because it was an election year and then Mitch McConnell did a thing and Trump got got the right to appoint Neil Gorsuch to succeed Antonin Scalia. Whereas President Obama was, he was deprived of that chance. And Merrick Garland, his nominee, was deprived of a hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee. I feel like that is the worst case scenario when it comes to the death of a federal judge in terms of their legacy in terms of our political future, in terms of our legal future. And not to be grim, but I think I'm going to take this moment to segue into the third discussion point of this episode, which I will call the Ginsburg question. And I am going to let a friend of the pod ask the question himself. Hi, Celine. My name is Joe. Uh, I was... 
I, first, I love your uh, podcast. I think you're really informative. Uh, and I uh, can't wait to hear more. Uh, I was calling in to ask about um, RB, RBG because she was put in the hospital today. And I know this isn't the first time uh, that she has been within the last few years, to say the least. So I was wondering if, do you think it's possible she would consider retiring soon? And if so, what would that mean for us? Um, Thanks, uh, and keep doing what you're doing. Hey, Joe. Thanks so much for calling in. Thanks for the compliments. And I think I speak for my listeners when I say that I'm extremely grateful for the fact that you called in and you asked the Ginsburg question, which is one of the hardest questions that our nation is facing right now. Just to get you all up to speed on what's happening with RBG, on July 14th, the Supreme Court Public Information Office published a press release saying that Justice Ginsburg was hospitalized in Baltimore for infection treatment, and then she was released. So that's what Joe is talking about in his call. But then three days later, Justice Ginsburg herself issued a statement through the Supreme Court's Public Information Office saying that she's undergoing chemo again because she had a cancer relapse. And to address Joe's question about whether or not RBG is going to step down soon, RBG, ringing true to her fighting spirit, says, I have often said I would remain a member of the court as long as I can do the job full steam. I remain fully able to do that. Just out of respect for the justice, I think we should take her words at face value. This third discussion point is actually about dismantling the idea of the Ginsburg question. Because a lot of the fear, anxiety, and anger around RBG and her stepping down is, in my opinion, unnecessary. RBG is not the cause of anything. She's the symptom, as are the other really old Supreme Court justices who have health issues too. Do we not care about them as well? Because Justice Sotomayor has diabetes, and recently I learned that Chief Justice Roberts has a history of seizures. So where where is Where's all the emotion around that? Where's, where's, where's the concern around that, right? Why are we focusing on this one little lady? My point is, don't target Justice Ginsburg. Watch your language around her, because the woman is fighting for her life. Redirect your emotions to fixing the system that engendered the situation. We need to let our elected federal officials know we're interested in judicial reform. And the whole purpose of this episode is to make sure that people who see the need for courts-based activism, and hopefully by now you've seen the need for that, are equipped with the proper information on existing legal and constitutional regulations affecting the judiciary. You have to look at what we have right now and decide for yourself what is it you want to keep and what is it you want to change. And just so I can further inspire you, I'm just going to go over some judiciary reform proposals really fast that have been resurfacing in response to this whole RBG situation. 
Okay, so this is a lightning round. The most popular proposal for change is term limits for the Supreme Court because no one person should have all that power for so long, right? And so a lot of the leaders in the term limit movement cite the fact that life expectancy in the 18th century isn't the same as it is today. So we've kind of outgrown the mind frame of the founding fathers regarding good behavior tenure. And I can see that because if you take the average tenure of all Supreme Court justices from the dawn of our republic to our time now, it's about 16.5 years. But then if you get more specific and look at the average from like the 1970s to like our time now, the estimated average is somewhere around 26 to 27 years on the court. And in more recent years, advocates for term limits are asking for a cap at 18 years. And there's some there's some calculus to it and it's somewhere within a 102 page law review article, so you're gonna have to forgive me for not being able to explain it to you because I have other things to do in my life, but I will say that 18 years is pretty close to the average lifespan of a written constitution. So according to research done by Thomas Ginsburg, Zachary Elkins, and James Melton in 2009, which was published by the University of Chicago, the mean constitutional lifespan across the world since 1789 is 17 years. Interpreted as the probability of survival at a certain age, the estimates show that one half of constitutions are likely to be dead by age 18, and by age 50, only 19% will remain. So what you should take from that is, well, one, our constitution's longevity is an anomaly, and more importantly, Two, this idea of constitutional refreshing by way of appointing a new justice once someone's 18 years is done, rather than rewriting a constitution like other countries seem to do, um, it provides a necessary sense of predictability that our judicial politics really needs. Because with what we have right now, the nation just gets paralyzed with like shock at the news of a retirement or death or impeachment, and our politicians just have to drop everything and scramble for that Supreme Court seat. The next proposal is packing the courts. And packing the courts refers to toying with the number of seats on the federal bench or Supreme Court, typically by adding to it so that a specific party can appoint more judges and justices that will review their policies kindly. And we think of court packing as like this unholy thing because, you know, FDR failed to pack the Supreme Court when it posed legal obstacles to the implementation of his New Deal regulation. But court packing isn't new. It's been done several times before. And, you know, just to highlight, like, a very interesting case of court packing prior to FDR, Lincoln did it in 1863 in the middle of the Civil War. He and a Republican Congress added a tenth seat to the Supreme Court and a tenth justice to the Supreme Court just to get their political show moving. And there's no number of fixed seats on the Supreme Court or the federal bench. It, the Constitution says nothing about fixed numbers. 
Congress can create more judgeships and justiceships. So really, packing the courts is taboo, but it's not new. But it does have a lot of political implications, like if one party decides to pack the courts, what's preventing their opposing party to do the same thing when they rise to power? So to quote Hamilton, every action has an equal opposite reaction. Aside from court packing and term limits, the stuff that we've already heard and is in the mainstream news, you also get really creative reform from extremely imaginative law professors. So in this episode, I'm highlighting the work of Dan Epps, who we talked about in the last episode, alongside Ganesh Siddharaman of Vanderbilt Law. So they've proposed a Supreme Court lottery, and here is what they say. Under this reform, every judge on the federal courts of appeals would be appointed as an associate justice of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court would hear cases as a panel of nine, randomly selected from all the justices. Once selected, the justices would research and prepare cases from their home chambers before traveling to Washington to hear oral arguments for two weeks, after which another set of judges would replace them. In addition, only a 6-3 supermajority of the court, rather than a simple majority, could hold a federal statute and possibly state statutes, depending on how one weighs federalism, unconstitutional. I think that the biggest plus to the Supreme Court lottery proposal is the fact that it's based on randomly selected judges, because we won't be able to say, oh, you know, the Supreme Court is majority conservative or majority liberal, because we won't know who comprises the panel until arguments take place and opinions are written, and it's going to be changed every two weeks. So in the public's eyes, um, public perception, it's it's a pretty impartial panel. And then Sitaraman and Epps also propose, like, a 555 plan? Their proposal reads as such. Our second proposal, the balanced bench, looks quite different from the Supreme Court lottery, but addresses similar concerns. The proposal has several components. First, the Supreme Court would start with 10 justices. Five would be affiliated with the Democrats and five with the Republicans. These 10 justices would then select five additional justices chosen from current circuit or possibly district court judges. The catch? The 10 partisan affiliated justices would need to select the additional five justices unanimously, or at least by a strong supermajority requirement. These additional justices would be chosen two years in advance for one-year terms. And if the justices failed to agree on a slate of additional colleagues, the Supreme Court would lack a quorum and could not hear any cases for that year. So I'm over here reading this and I'm just like, oh boy. The, the incentive mechanism of lacking a quorum and not hearing any cases, that is scary. Um, and another thing is in my comparative constitutions class, I read about a country that had a similar type of judiciary layout and it awakened a fear in me about this about this proposal by Epps and Sitaraman because like what if what if one political party during the nomination and advise and consent process like delays their nominations to the court purposely um like they won't vote to approve of them as an act of political spite like that just seems like a worst case scenario to me aside from the fact that if if the 10 justices that are already appointed can't 
can't unanimously or strongly agree on their colleagues, there's going to be no term. I just, it's interesting. So those were the three points I wanted to touch on in this episode. And now I want to leave you with a few things. First, I want to give more information about what Mitch McConnell did regarding the Scalia seat vacancy, because I realized I didn't, I didn't explain it. Basically what Mitch McConnell did was he kept the Scalia seat open by not considering Merrick Garland, who President Obama nominated to fill Antonin Scalia's seat. And I've heard some legal experts, not pundits, talk about the Merrick Garland situation. And I think after doing the research, the truth of the matter is that President Obama and Merrick Garland were deprived of these things because Obama had someone teed up for the Supreme Court. He was ready. Merrick Garland was ready. He had already visited some senators prior to what he anticipated would be a nomination hearing. And you know, Trump wasn't even elected yet. So what I'm saying is Obama fulfilled his constitutional duty of nominating someone, but Merrick Garland was unfairly deprived of his hearing. But in terms of the lawfulness of what Mitch McConnell did and the constitutionality of what Mitch McConnell did, President Obama never really took Mitch McConnell to federal court. So we can't say whether or not what McConnell did was illegal, unlawful, or unconstitutional, okay? So that is what I am going to say about the Mitch McConnell situation. And I have to clarify this for the sake of integrity and objectivity because I think my characterization of President Obama and Judge Garland being deprived of something isn't inherently politically charged. As I said, I think the truth is that something unfair happened, but I'm not qualified to talk about the legality or constitutionality of it because it was never taken to court and I don't have any, like, real judicial opinions to, to discuss it with you. There's only, you know, scholarly conjecture. And then second, I want to say that if you're able to view the custom cover art for this episode, Yes, that's Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and this photo was taken by yours truly. I was at the Library of Congress for an event she was participating in, and I saw her. I whipped my phone out, and she caught me with the corner of her eye. Now, is she giving me stink eye? I do not know, but what's done is done, and I can assure you... I now know the decorum for when you're in the presence of a Supreme Court justice. And then, finally, conclusively, do the work and look into federal courts. And now I'm moving on to thank yous. I'd like to say thank you to Justice Ginsburg for her service on the federal bench and the Supreme Court and continuing her work on the Supreme Court. 
for standing up for gender equality and so many other principles of liberty. Girl, Ruth, I cannot wait to hear you again on the first Monday of October, which is when the Supreme Court term starts. I also want to thank my thesis advisor, Professor Hartman, and the American Studies program at Georgetown. Without Prof. Hartman and American Studies, I wouldn't have been exposed to the ideas and material I drew upon for this episode, and I would not have the confidence to discuss it and think about it so openly. Also, I want to say thanks to the Federal Judicial Center and the U.S. Senate, particularly Senator Feinstein's office. I interned for these institutions, and my supervisors and mentors there helped me refine my legal and legislative research skills that led me to this stuff. You know, thanks to all of you for listening to me talk about these things. Hopefully this was more interesting and animated than the first episode. And, you know, as always, if you have questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, please feel free to leave me a voice message like Joe did on Anchor. The URL will be in the episode description. And with that, peace. God save the United States and this honorable court.